fact that we don't know this man isn't important, really, because his experience is our experience. And his fate up here is our fate. Vanitas vanitatum et omnia vanitas, says the preacher. All is vanity. I think that's a pretty good epitaph for all of us. When we're stripped of all our worldly possessions and all our fame and family and friends, we all face death alone. But it's that solitude and death that's our common bond in life. I know it's ironic, but that's just the way things are. Vanitas vanitatum et omnia vanitas. Only when we understand all is vanity, only then it isn't. There you go. That was Chris in the morning. Uh, I guess he's not on the radio this time. He's giving a eulogy for a mysterious dead body. Yeah, John Doe, I guess we can call him. What does he say? Only when we understand that all is vanity, only then it isn't. And uh, Maurice, of course, is confused by this, as he is by the Aurora Borealis, by a lot of things that Chris uh, gets into, a lot of things that Chris says. It's confusing to Maurice. What do you make of this eulogy? I think it's one of those, like, the more you see, the less you actually do see. Do you get what I'm saying right there? Uh, let's see. Uh, unpack that for me. Yeah. So, uh, I, I guess in the plain terms that I can put it in is that, uh, somebody who thinks he knows everything doesn't actually know anything. And the person that thinks that he doesn't know that much because he realizes it's so infinitesimal, like all of the knowledge in the world, that person is really wise for knowing his own limitations. Yeah. What's the quote? It's like, uh, the wise man knows that he knows nothing or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I think that's what Chris is trying to say right here is that once we realize that we are, uh, seeking vanity, that's when we can realize that we can start from there and we can move onwards. That's my interpretation of it. What what about you? Yeah. I don't know. He's doing a lot of uh, verbal gymnastics here for me. I'm (laughs) I'm also with Maurice. I like what he's saying though. Um, Maybe I'm just like too fast to just accept something without fully understanding it. But I've said it before. Like one thing I like about this show is that I may not be able to wrap my head around it, but I still like it a lot like the Aurora Borealis in season one. Mm -hmm. Maggie says, uh, I'm not sure I understand it, but I like it. And, you know, I get sort of the gist of what is going on here. Um, Vanity and death. Death seems to be a huge theme in this eulogy and throughout the episode. Just coping with the idea of death. I also like in this scene, Chris is comforting uh, Ruth Ann, who's probably the oldest person we've seen, in Sicily at least. Um, And she seems to be grappling with this. Uh, It's... Very tertiary. It's not really, it's a tangential thing, but uh, she has a line somewhere in this episode where she's like, I don't get it, the whole mystery of it all. And Ed responds, yeah, I know, we don't know who this dead body is, but we'll figure it out. And she's like, no, not not that. I just, life in general. I've been alive for, you know, how old is she? Like, she seems really old, but she's like, I still don't get it. I still don't know what it's about. We are talking about, of course, Northern Exposure. This is the hit I don't know if it was a hit. It was a hit at the time. No one talks about it anymore except us. Uh, this is a CBS TV series in the 90s. Of course, you're listening to Northern Overexposure Podcast, hosted by me. My name is Lee. Yeah, my name is Charles. I am his co-host. 
Yeah. We're co-hosts together. You know, I don't want to say either of us is host above co-hosts. <laughs> We're dual co-hosts. You know, the, the whole uh, dynamic is I've seen the show. It's one of my favorite shows. Charles is watching it for the first time. And I feel like every episode, I'm trying to convince you that this is the best show in the world. <laughs> what is your opinion of this episode? Uh, this episode had a lot of moving parts, I found. Um, at least three separate plot lines that from what I can tell, don't connect with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps in theme they connect, but in content, definitely not. And overall, I think I liked it. Mm-hmm. It's actually really strange because I had a lot of hours to think about this episode mm-hmm. uh, since I saw it. And I kept revisiting the episode and kept rewatching it. And even still, I'm not entirely too sure if I'm... Uh, what to make of it? Yeah, what to make of this episode. Well, let's I don't get, know what to rank it. We'll get through this discussion and uh, we'll probably, as is common with this show, we like to bring on a guest at the end of the episode, someone who has never seen a single episode of the show, to watch this episode that we are talking about, the episode in question, and uh, to give sort of the outsider perspective, completely a, a fish out of water, has never seen the show, what sticks out, what works, what doesn't. So hopefully after that, they'll give you even more time to kind of digest this episode. Maybe you'll have... Uh, a better ranking for it. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, it's pretty, uh, such, it almost sounds like a sadistic experiment we're putting on this person. Because we're really oh, just the, dropping them in the middle of nowhere and saying, like, I'll oh, just watch this and see what you think about it. I feel, I feel like most people are very appreciative that we've called on them. And most people leave pretty happy. Like They pretty, do, yeah, yeah. They, you they, know. Uh, from what I can tell, they, you know, they're honored to have been called upon to do Some this. Some people say they'll continue watching. Others don't mention that maybe, you know, but even if they don't say they're going to keep watching, I feel like they say that they enjoyed their time watching that (laughs) one episode. So that's good. I mean, yeah, I think, I think, uh, for the most part, people like the show, Mm -hmm. which is good for, for some small amount of people. Hopefully this will spark, (laughs) uh, reignite sort of interest in the show. Hopefully we can introduce it to new people. Mm -hmm. So let's get back into it. All is vanity. How do we start off? We start off with a bar fight almost because we've, uh, what is it? In, in another episode, Ed um, sort of alludes to if you want to live in Sicily, you got to like drinking and you got to like starting fights. But we don't really see a lot of that in the first season. And in fact, I think we see one uh, bar fight in sort of a fantasy sequence, but this is the first real deal, uh, 100% IRL bar fight that's going down. What are they doing? Yeah. <laughs> It's about to escalate into uh, just shanking territory. Uh, it's about to get the hunting air. knives. Yeah. Oh yeah. What is this uh, feud? What what do you what is this over? What's happening? It's over dogs. <laughs> yeah, like uh, this kind of lumberjack fellow calls out another one, uh, and he says, "If you don't think a Labrador Retriever is the best hunting dog in the world, if anyone else wants to contest this idea, come say it to my face or something like that." that. They're is- about to start a fight over. Labrador retrievers and versus German short hairs, right? Yeah, it seems like a strange heel to die on. You're a, you're a dog person, right? What would you rank as the uh, the best hunting dog or the best dog in uh, your opinion? Is definitely dependent on the game and the mm-hmm. land okay. uh, that you are hunting in. So if you're I, in Alaska, say in Alaska, oh gosh, I have no idea, but I imagine <laughs> that there isn't a lot of uh, duck hunting compared to like let's say Louisiana, which right. has a lot of duck hunting. So I, I, I honestly don't know, but I 
I think it's very ignorant to say that the Labrador Retriever is the best hunting dog flat out. There's plenty of other. I mean, just okay. off the top of my head, the Beagle is a really great hunting dog. Mm-hmm. So, oh, but they they all have their different uh, strengths. Yeah, yeah. Though that gentleman is correct With that paws. the Labrador Retriever was uh, pretty much bred to be in the water. Gotcha. Uh, in fact, they originally came from the St. John's Water Dog. They were descendant of there from Newfoundland, and they were bred to help fishermen help retrieve the lines and nets from the ocean. Very cool. Yeah, so they have a huge affinity for water, and he is right in that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about the webbed paws things. Oh, if that's true or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's true for all the Labrador retrievers, but <laughs> they were definitely do have a, a affinity toward water, so he is right in that regard. But, uh, I mean, obviously the manner in which he's doing it, he's being a total... Uh, Blowhard. He's yeah. just like... <laughs> Uh, but Holling does get to flex his like bartender powers in this scene because he's has a standoff with this uh, belligerent man, lumberjack character. Yeah, he's stone cold, unmoving, um, basically orders the guy to get out of there, which um, seems to spark an attraction uh, in Shelling. His, I guess he can't call her uh, his wife because they didn't, you know, properly get married, but they've, they've, they're partners for life. It seems. Yeah. Uh, significant other, I guess yeah. would also be a term. And I don't know if it's the next scene, but pretty shortly after this, we're thrust into a, uh, a bedtime sort of like uh, Shelly and hauling scene, which yeah, we, we, this is something we never can avoid, but uh, let's talk about it again. At this point in your viewing of Northern Exposure, how does this feel seeing <laughs> Shelly <laughs> and Hauling together? She's 18 years old. He's 63. For me, it's still, it's uncomfortable at times. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I've just kind of accepted it. I'm not saying. Like she loves him, you know. Yeah. They love each other mutually. It still just feels weird. Yeah. I, I understand they have a mutual love for each other, but. You know, I, I can't spend the rest of my days watching Northern Exposure for however many episodes I have left and having... <laughs> it's like 110 to, episodes I know, or something. I, I'm not about to spend 110 episodes being like, you know, I still disagree with uh, that Holling Shelly um, partnership. I'm just going to have to accept it and say like, all right, no, whatever. No, I think it's healthy to question it every episode. Like... I think I said in an earlier episode, it's like, I don't really remember. I feel like the show handles their relationship with grace Mm -hmm. at some point. I don't know if we're there yet. Um, And it's a, you know, I think we should not disregard it. I think we should definitely hold it under the microscope because yeah, it hasn't this like creepiness factor. We talked about it in the last episode too. Hasn't necessarily gone away yet. It's still very much alive. Uh, But also very hard to avoid in this episode because one of the large plot lines of this episode is about hauling, uh, getting circumcised. Yeah. Uh, which is how <laughs> my problem with this is just logistics. How did they go this long without her realizing that well, he was circumcised? No, no, no. There is a line where, um, so how it's brought up is, <laughs> Oh my God. How it's brought up is they're in bed in the scene and Shelly makes a remark about how, uh, <laughs> sorry, about how strange, uh, indifferent Hollings, uh, let's see, they term him as a Johnny in this episode. Yeah. That was the, uh, 
They say penis in this Name. episode. I guess we could say penis. Wait, you know, that, it's do the, they? Yeah, um, Joel says it at least once, like finally at the end of the ep- towards the end of the episode. Oh, so we can say that. It's okay. it's the scientific <laughs> term. Anyway, Shelley remarks that it looks different, and uh, Holling does say in response, like you never said that before. Like you know, I've been uncircumcised. Mm-hmm. It just has come up, but. So it's not like she's never noticed oh, it. Oh, okay. I misunderstood that scene because it looked like from she my... She had just never <laughs> Yeah, she just had never actually properly looked at it. Yeah. And I thought that was really strange. I was mm-hmm. like, all right, well, I guess that's whatever. We do get in the scene Maggie's theme, but it's, again, in a new rendition. So we said um, this beautiful piece of music that often accompanies Maggie. I think we first hear it in um, Soapy Sanderson, episode three. And it has since been used for Jesse the Bear in episode seven. Mm-hmm. But that sort of arrangement was uh, some guitars. Now in this episode, it comes up as sort of a violin string arrangement. Again, used with uh, not necessarily Jesse the Bear, but with Holling and Shelley. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that Maggie's theme also plays with Whenever, Maggie yeah. in this episode. Yes, when her uh, dad comes to visit, which is another plot line in the episode. Mm-hmm. Maggie's father... Frank O'Connell? Um, yeah. I believe his name is. It's Frank. Yeah. He's coming to visit her, and uh, I'm sure actually it happens more than once, but we get the traditional Maggie's theme with the triangle. Yeah. <laughs> that we all know and love. I guess we should, uh, you know, we're still at the beginning of the episode. We should mention uh, this episode was written by Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, who will come up a lot in this series. I don't know if you've, you've probably already seen their names as producers on the show. Mm-hmm. They were husband and wife. Um, They often, I guess, write together and produce shows together. And it can also be noted that uh, at least Diane Frolov was involved as a um, supervising producer on uh, The Sopranos. Oh. This is kind of like our second, there's probably been more than that, but it was it Robin Green was also like an executive producer on The Sopranos. Yeah. So there's been a lot of, um, or at least a a number of... uh, Northern Exposure sort of screenwriters and uh, producers that have gone on to work on The Sopranos after the show. Hmm. They were the writers, you said? The writers of The Sopranos. Okay, yeah, they were the writers. All right. Uh, Speaking on that, one thing that really confused me was that it's still in the beginning whenever they're showing the credits of everybody, like who's crediting toward what. Uh, The name uh, John McCain had appeared. Wait, what? Who's John McCain? I think he plays Frank. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, it was like guest starring. And it's the scene where Joel is walking up to Maggie in the snow and in she's unpacking from yeah. the uh, truck. And the name just John McCain, but spelled uh, differently. It, it's slight. It doesn't have the I in McCain. It just says M C C A N N. Wait. McCann? No, that is, that's, that can't be right. Hang on. Oh, wait. Yeah, it is spelled that way. M-C-C-A-N-N. And when I saw that, all I could think was like, <laughs> John, John McCain. McCain was in acting? Like, <laughs> uh, uh, No, different John McCann. But, yeah, uh, but I, I couldn't help but notice him in the uh, opening uh, titles. In that scene, though, uh, Joel calls Maggie Calamity Jane. Mm-hmm. The Pioneers uh, woman, right? I didn't know who that was. Yeah, she's like a Frontiers woman. Uh, uh, it's something where um, Joel offhandedly does not offer Maggie any help. Uh, she's unloading a lot of stuff from her truck and uh, she's like, you don't want to lend a hand, Fleischman? And he says something like, oh, why? why I wouldn't dare to, you know, Calamity Jane. I wouldn't dare step yeah, in that, your way. Her pioneer spirit. 
<laughs> this is something I cannot stop laughing at when I had to look up who Calamity Jane was. But if you okay. see and read Calamity Jane's Wikipedia page, you know how there's always like that intro paragraph that just broadly describes mm-hmm, what like the, a brief brief summary. Yeah, of what this individual or object is. Uh, in Calamity Jane's, the very last sentence says. Much of what she claimed to have witnessed and participated in could not be proven. She did not have a formal education and suffer from alcoholism. Oh, that's no good. That I don't know good. why that's even in the intro. That paragraph. sounds slanderous. I know exactly. Why would you want to like put? I don't know why, but that's she in sounds like a bad James. person now. <laughs> I could not stop laughing when I read that Wikipedia page. Someone's just like calling her out and edited this. Uh, Who is mad at Calamity Jane 200 of, years? Yeah. <laughs> How many years ago was this? Jeez, yeah. Long time ago. But yeah, he goes and, you know, picks fun at her. And it's obviously just there to show the bantering antagonistic dynamic yeah yeah, dynamic between the two because as we're going to see later on in the episode maggie's father comes in to visit her and maggie has somehow lied to him and convinced him that joel is her boyfriend yeah i love that so she's obviously uncomfortable with her father visiting it comes uh sort of as a surprise to her because the letter in which her father tells her that he's going to come visit her it doesn't get delivered to maggie on time she actually gets it like a second hand. Yeah. It was, it was miss. It was uh, inappropriately or incorrectly delivered to someone else. And uh, finally, it's made its way to Maggie. She reads it. She doesn't have time to react. And you can tell there's something uh, that she's keeping from her dad. And in the first scene where uh, she welcomes her dad, I think the very end of that scene, he says something like, I know why you're nervous. You don't want me to meet your, um, your boyfriend. That's too bad about your boyfriend. Yeah, well... You know, when you wrote and told me who you're going out with, I thought, thank God this one's not a flake. Come on now, don't get all worked up. You know what I mean. I was looking forward to meeting your Dr. Joel. And so it's clear that Maggie has written to her father about being in a relationship with someone named Dr. Joel. What do you think about that, Charles? I think that it's just something that... uh, is really neat about Maggie's character because, and it's explored in this episode where we see that Maggie is this very tough individual. She doesn't need help from anybody. Mm -hmm. She's able to just handle her own stuff. And she, you know, she's in Alaska by herself. Well, you know, discounting that she's with boyfriends. Oh no, yeah, she looks out for herself. Yeah, she looks out for herself. And it seems like she came to Alaska uh, against her father's wishes. Yeah, almost like rebelling against, like, because she's got this, you know, she's her own person that I guess mm-hmm. yeah. her father can never see. And so she, maybe that spurs her reasoning for why she escapes. Where is it? Uh, Gross Point? Is that where she's from? Yeah, Michigan. Gross Point. She's made her, made her own life the way she wants to live it in yeah. uh, Alaska. But she still cares about helping or like trying to appear like the ideal situ- uh, ideal person that her father would have liked. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's really telling about her characteristics. I also really like that the first scene that we see between Maggie and her father is Maggie putting on this pink yeah. beanie and pink gloves. It's um yeah, it's a great visual um, sort of like she's, uh, she's putting on a costume for him and it's funny cause it, you know, she doesn't start the scene wearing it. It's literally yeah. as the plane lands, she has to put it on. Mm-hmm. So it's like, she's trying to be herself up into the moment where she doesn't have to, she yeah. has to, I mean, 
trying to be herself up until the moment until she has to fake being um, sort of this Barbie, as Joel puts mm-hmm. it, for her father. And it's always like, uh, you know, lots of arguments to and from for that because it, on one hand, I mean, it's your parents, and at that point, you, there's some battles you can't win, if it just makes <laughs> yeah. them happy. Yeah. You just do it. Like, yeah, yeah whatever. It that's, makes your parents happy. That's definitely happy. her philosophy for the most part of this episode. You mm-hmm. know, she's, it's like, she's just got to keep appearances. Yeah, just keep up appearances, uh, exactly like you said. And of course, it comes to a tipping point throughout the entire episode. But yeah. I like that small little detail within it. <laughs> I thought that was like, oh, it's very, yeah, it's that's a great true vis- to anybody. visual um, yeah. detail. Yeah, exactly. It's true to anybody that's, um, has to appease to her parents. Her dad mentions uh, her other past boyfriends in this scene, one of them being Bruce, uh, who has been attributed as uh, being the writer of Mountain of My Misgivings. Have you heard that title drop yet in this series? It comes up a couple times. It's one of a, it's basically, it's Maggie's um, boyfriend who died uh, on the the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote, he wrote a novel or a memoir or something called Mountain of My Misgivings. I've I've always thought that's a hilarious title. (laughs) Everyone always makes fun of the title too. I wonder. Very pretentious sounding. They never brought it up, but I wonder what uh, her father thinks about all of her boyfriends having passed away. It's an interesting um, sort of show Bible note that, you know, I don't, I don't think they've, uh, it'll come up again, obviously, since we're talking about it, but at least in this episode, they kind of glance over it. They don't really get into it. The fact that all of her boyfriends have died on her. Mm, okay. Do you know what this plot line reminds me of a lot? What's that? Uh, Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Refresh my memory on that movie. Yeah. It's the one where, uh, Nora has to pretend that Nick's her boyfriend in order to, uh, pretty much annoy another girl that she's competing against slightly. So why, she wait, pretends. Why that is Nick's, she competing again? I'm, try, I'm just trying to remember the movie. Who's, yeah, it was just a girl that she went to school with, and she mm-hmm. just really doesn't like her. And she's kind of making snide remarks that she's single, and she's like, "Oh, I'm not single. I'm here with my boyfriend, uh, that guy over there." And then she goes and uh, asks Nick, it's "Like, hey, can you just pretend to be my boyfriend for like five minutes? Just yeah. be cool. Just be cool and like make out in the first uh, first time they meet." Yeah, and it's the same kind of similar. No, plot yeah, line. I feel like that that sort of scenario is a is a classic such a classic sort of like comedy uh, mm-hmm. romantic comedy deal uh i i think i was laughing out loud when i saw this uh, scene so maggie is trying to keep her father away from from sicily obviously because she doesn't want him to meet rick she doesn't want him to meet joel because she's been writing about joel joel does has no clue about this mm-hmm. but it's hilarious as they're walking through um you know the town center of sicily Joel exits, I think, the brick, and he's like, hey, Maggie, is that you, Maggie? Come here. Like, I have a question for you, Maggie. And he's like, essentially, uh, Maggie's trying to ignore this and, like, push her father away while Joel is yelling. Her father hasn't noticed it yet, but Joel is, like, basically running through traffic, playing Frogger in this, like, very tight telephoto shot. Like, he's, like, running for his life. He's like, Maggie, why won't you? You can't hear me. Why aren't you? Are you running away? I, I love that. Um... I, I just love whenever characters have like these little lies and secrets that they have to try to like mm-hmm. fake the whole time. And you can see their worlds like so close from falling there. The lie is so close from being revealed uh, as a lie, but uh, they're able to like able to keep it uh, balanced just yeah, long keep enough. Yeah, keep a veneer of yeah. uh, truth yeah. still standing. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, yeah, I... 
definitely thought that plot line was, it kind of went crazy at some points, but I understand what they were trying to go with at the yeah. end of it. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Well, do you want to just hop? You what just, do you want to hop into? Let's, let's, let's breeze through that. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Maggie and her father. So inevitably Maggie has to explain to Joel what the situation is and um, she convinces him or he rather uh, weasels his way into dinner with uh, Maggie her father, Frank, mm-hmm. you know, and himself, they're going to have this dinner where Joel plays the loving boyfriend of Maggie and she plays uh, her like sort of daddy's girl. And it's, it's played for laughs. It's funny because uh, they have to act like they are caring and like uh, lovey-dovey with each other when they're actually um, arguing and like warring with each other. For instance, I think Maggie, you know, accidentally on purpose uh, spill scotch all over Joel. And uh, what's a little scary is Joel is like sneaking a lot of kisses from Maggie, complimenting her figure. Yeah, It's very... uh, Off-putting? It's like evil. I'm trying to think of what the word is. (laughs) He's taking advantage of her. That's what I thought too. It's like funny because, you know, you you might get the, the... idea that they kind of like each other, but you know, they are arguing with each other this whole time. So it's not really established that they're into each other, but still Joel is like literally like licking her face or something. You know, he's like kissing her. Yeah. It seems like he's just uh, going, going overboard with it. Like yeah. too far. You're just like playing like the role too hard. Yeah. It's standard sexual harassment. It's what I oh, can yes, see from yes. it. This is a very shocking case. Um, what else happens in this sort of, um, dinner. Well, it's when we start seeing the cross-examination between Frank, the father, and Joel, and he starts questioning Joel on the type of person that he is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly, they talk about sports. Yeah, Joel gets to play this fantasy where uh, he's the type of person who enjoys luge and um, bungee jumping. Like he's, you know, something that as a doctor, he would never be into. Yeah. Dangerous, even more dangerous. Reckless endangerment, pretty much. This, uh, this uh, fake character that he's created of Dr. Joel. Yeah. He, get, he gets to play that. Why didn't he just say he plays golf? Cause he's, he sucks at it. He's terrible at golf. Yeah. But at least that's he what he genuinely yeah. tries at yeah. least. And he likes golf. Yeah. That's the thing. He likes golf. So I don't know why he didn't just say golf. And that right is there. like definitely something I think Frank O'Connell would be, um, would be appreciative of like, that's the type of sport that Frank would play. I yeah. Think. That's what I thought was so confusing, but <laughs> eh, whatever <laughs> he, he went, he's like went way overboard with it, you know? But I think the resolution of that plot line is really sweet though. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So eventually Joel, I, I guess doesn't necessarily convince Maggie, but able to shed his perspective on what she's doing is wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that, he, you know, she should just come clean about the truth. And she does with her father and, uh, you know, she admits, I was like, Oh, I, I'm with Rick. Yeah. I, I did it because I don't think you would approve of him. Yeah. That's why I made up Joel. We're not actually together. It was just a ruse. And then, and, well, real fast. Yeah. The, it's, I like that. Um, it's only at the moment when, um, I think, uh, it's the last day that Frank is in town. He's just about to like, actually Maggie's like packing his bag for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, Frank has bought Joel, like he's approving. Mm-hmm. And it's only at the moment when, uh, you know, the plan that this crazy plan that Maggie had actually worked. It's only then that where she decides to destroy it all. And she's like, look, 
I'm not actually dating Joel. I'm dating this guy, Rick. He's a bush pilot. You wouldn't like him. But continue. What is, what's your opinion of this sort of resolution here? Yeah. Well, once he learns about the truth, he doesn't tell Joel. Like he meets up with Joel at Ruth Ann's because he's he trying sees, to buy yeah. some what, they bump into slippers. Each other. Yeah. Yeah. They bump into each other and Joel still keeps up the charade. But uh, Maggie's father says, well, I just think it's really nice that Maggie has a lot of people here that care about her and willing to do what it takes to help her, which is what he's trying to say. Like you're willing to put on this charade. Right. I'm not going to call you out on it. Yeah. I think that's a really nice thing for the dad to say. Yeah. And that's like our continual theme of that. Uh, this is a town of friends. Everyone's got friends and that's the beauty. Um, everyone's looking out for each other and caring for each other, including, you know, Joel would go out of his way like this to, put up the charade mm-hmm. um, for her for her father. Overall, I think I like the father character. I mean, obviously, he's got his negative traits of being yeah. uh, wishing that his daughter was his idealistic view of what he mm-hmm. would have liked. But overall, it seemed like he was pretty accepting of uh, yeah, it's at a cool, the end. It's a cool character, and I'm almost certain that we see... I mean, I gotta. I feel like the more and more we do this podcast, the, the, uh, the less and less I remember like what is to come. But I feel like they come. You know, uh, that's going to be fun. Her parents are going to come <laughs> back, I think. Let's jump up on to something else. Yeah, let's talk about the third plot line that we haven't even touched yet. Okay, what have we not talked about here? So Joel is running his, yeah, still being a doctor, and he's still apparently <laughs> using the number system. Yeah, that is interesting. He uh, walks out uh, after seeing a patient. I can't, can't recall. It was, was. Uh, hauling. Okay, well, we'll jump into hauling in a second. But mm-hmm. after seeing hauling... He asks Marilyn who's next and she calls out number nine, uh, which is funny. Like why have they not, this is okay. In the first episode, if you're just tuning in now, um, Joel is in this facility that should not be a hospital. (laughs) They don't have any sort of records or or any proper system in place for a hospital. Uh, so they just name all the patients in the waiting room. They give them a number, like you're number one, you're number two, you're number three. That's the order that we're going to treat you. But they're still doing this, uh, what, eight months later? Um, yeah. Or more. And and because of this, we find out that number nine, who they've been calling, is dead. And because they have only been using this number system, they don't know his name. They don't know anything about him. How do they, how do they bill these people? <laughs> yeah. I guess they must collect their name afterwards. It's a terrible, um, <laughs> terrible <laughs> setup they oh, have. Oh, God. Hi, number nine. You've... Uh, you have eight thousand dollars, but what's your name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to pay us a lot of money. Can we get your information now? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, so he Joel loses away. his first patient. Even though I, I, technically, technically was, he didn't get to the patient stage. That's what I think too. I don't know why they keep saying he lost every, his everyone, first patient. Uh, you know, expresses grief towards Joel. It's like we're sorry you, you lost a patient. And Joel takes offense. He's like, no, he wasn't my patient yet. I didn't, he didn't die on my watch. Yeah, I think that's kind of ridiculous. Before he got to the doctor's office. He's yeah, in the waiting room. That's like saying if anybody dies, that means it was the doctor's fault. If anybody dies in the world, is what kind of what the townsfolks are saying. Yeah. So now Joel is bearing the responsibility of everybody in the town, their, their livelihood. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little too much. Uh, <laughs> I, so they immediately have to sort of like, trying to figure out as much as they can about number nine. Like who was this person? Uh, I believe it's in Joel's office. Uh, number nine's body is out on the table and Maurice and, uh, Marilyn. and Marilyn are also there. 
and Maurice is like eating a cheese sandwich or something. Yeah. Which reminds me like a great concept, this like TV trope that always comes up, uh, which is basically like coroners in morgues eating sandwiches. Coroners are always like eating like lunch or eating sandwiches. And it's like this sort of stereotypical uh, thing. You know, they're, they're surrounded by this morbid idea and this gross fact that there's dead bodies in front of them, but you can tell that they've done it for so long that they are sort of numb to this fact. They're like eating food and like eating spaghetti or sandwiches as they're yeah. like cutting open dead bodies. It just shows you that's like your stereotypical um, coroner. And I like that in the scene, uh, Maurice is eating because it kind of shows his, um, he, he's unaffected by seeing a dead body. Whereas Joel kind of plays the opposite. I know Joel's a doctor and I'm sure he's seen many dead bodies, but he refuses to search the man's pockets for information. Yeah. I wonder if it's a system of honor, I guess. Like, because at that point he knows that it's not his patient. Mm-hmm. So at that point he's just desecrating a body at that point. But had mm. he been his patient, maybe he would have been more comfortable. Cause at that point he's, yeah, it's established it's a little that closer be, of a connection. Yeah, exactly. So Whereas maybe, that's it, it. it feels like with Maurice, like maybe he's done this before. Like this is maybe this is just how <laughs> it works when you live out in the middle of nowhere. You know, that's true because apparently Maurice knows the the procedure. Yeah, of what he's to like, do with the dead Marilyn, body. you're going to need to take some notes. Uh, we're going to do a little. Uh, what is it? Like a litany of what is in this man's belongings. They search his pockets. They pull out a few things: juicy fruit, gum. Uh, what I've found most interesting and what Joel brings up again later is uh, a note in this man's pocket that reads, pick up shirt Monday, which just made me think like people in the 90s used to write themselves notes. Uh, this is before you could like set your phone to remind you. This is yeah. before you had a phone on you. Yeah, pretty much. In the first place. But yeah, now you can just like, no one would write a note and put it in their pocket. That's just a piece of paper that gets thrown away. Well, I guess it kind of is helpful because... The act of writing something mm-hmm. makes you remember it, but I don't know or if you put it in you your remember. pocket. Is that actually true? Um, I mean, actually, I'm sure that, that is. That helps you like learn and remember things. I uh, heard some weird uh, idea that uh, people who like explained an event to another person actually had a worse recollection of the event than people who did not explain the event. Hmm. Um, That's like, really interesting. Like if they see like a robbery and then they explain it to someone, and then uh, the next day they have to write down what they saw at the robbery, the people um, who simply saw the robbery didn't write it down, but the next day had to write down what they saw, I guess, uh, had more of the facts correct. Hmm. That seems like, I, I like to use this expression, I don't even know if it's a real one, but it seems like a, a two-dimensional problem becoming a three-dimensional problem. And by, what I mean by that is that there's a lot of factors coming into place right here and more than any way yeah. we can grasp. Because I feel like if, if what I'm saying is true, it's definitely like a skewed view of, like maybe in some cases that happens. Yeah, but. even if that was true, I can foresee a lot of reasons why that would even be the case. Like mm-hmm. for example, maybe once you explain it, at the moment, it's you're just interpreting it in one way, but as the next day goes on, you're realizing like, oh, maybe I fabricated that thing, or maybe I overhyped some. Or you've detail. already like offloaded the knowledge or something. Yeah, you offloaded the knowledge, so but you don't need to try to recall it. Yeah, it can either be that, or you feel honor bound by whatever you just said, even though you know it might not be true. So you still go ahead with what you said, 
uh, even though like those people who didn't say it didn't, they're not honor bound by their words of what they just said. Uh-huh. So they can just speak what they're saying. There's uh, just so many reasons as to why that could be true. Also, we're not psychologists. I'm oh, pretty, yeah, yeah. pretty sure is... I heard this on an episode of Radio Lab. So go, <laughs> go check in there if you want to know the full story. Sorry uh, we planted this uh, potentially false fact in your mind. I do agree with you. I'll go on the record that I think... Uh, Writing something down uh, might help you remember it better. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. for instance, got to pick up that shirt on Monday. Uh, one thing that I want to point out is that I think that when Joel says that detail, Marilyn says that there's no dry cleaner in Sicily. But no dry cleaner, no tailor. Yeah, no dry cleaner, no tailor. But in episode two of this season, yeah. when Ed is with the one who waits, the one who waits points out that the wash and dry, yeah, which used is- to be a meeting place. And the wash and dry, from, it, it no, is a dry cleaner, isn't no, it? No, no, I think it's a laundromat, which would be a different thing. Wait, that's a different thing? Well, so a laundromat is where you would go uh, to pay like a coin-operated machine to use a washer and a dryer, whereas a dry cleaner uses a completely different process of cleaning, um, cleaning your clothes. Today I learned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So while I don't know if he specifically says it's a laundromat, uh, Ed in that episode, I don't know if he says that, but I get the idea from his description that it is a laundromat, which would be different from a um, dry cleaner. Oh, okay, got it. That's so, what I was so confused about. And I thought yeah. I, honestly, I thought I got him and I got you moment. No, 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 no it's good, good. We're, we're, we're holding this episode up to a microscope, which is our duty, you know? That's what, we, that's what we're striving for. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the plot line right there where they try to handle this uh, deceased body, this John Doe that they have on hand. I kind of like this plot line. Yeah, you're right. I like this sort of theme of death. Uh, it's definitely a huge part of, uh, you know, philosophy, the human experience. So uh, it's definitely worth contemplating. I like um, sort of the, the music that Chris chooses to play during this episode. Uh, what does he call it? It's a piece of uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, which Chris lets us know um, Beethoven was writing this as he was like finally losing all of his hearing. And Chris is able to spin this and sort of relate this to the idea of coming to an end of your life and, you know, death. And so for whatever reason, Chris feels that this seventh symphony has a strong connection to death. And that's why he chooses it. This is after they find the body. Um, This is what he chooses to play on the radio. Also in this plot line, Another town hall meeting is called. Yeah. You're a huge fan of these town hall meetings. What is your ranking? Uh, we've had, what, three so far? Uh, yeah, I want to say three, three town hall meetings. I got to say probably what? the first one is my favorite. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, that one's probably the best one. The first one was... The second one was uh, Russian flu, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, wait, no, I do really like oh, that the one. second one, the, yeah, Russian flu like was so good. I that one a lot. Antropov and the, whatever, the Kremlin or... Yeah, some of them have, like, Glass intimate Nos, knowledge of uh, USSR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the first town hall on? That's the one about Joel trying to get out of his contract, right? Oh, it's... it's Okay, we figured it out. It's Chris in the morning uh, being kicked off the air and Maurice taking over the air, playing a lot of show tunes. That's why they had to call their first town meeting because they detested... Uh, Maurice's selection on air of music. Yeah, I really like that town hall meeting. So, but which I, one do you rank? I guess you said the Russian flu is that your number one town I, hall? Oh or? man, I don't. I don't want to go back on my okay. word because I did just say that uh, <laughs> the first one was my favorite. But well, you really like that Russian flu town hall meeting. That yeah, was fantastic. The USSR. Um, anyway, we got a Russian. <laughs> 
we got a town hall meeting in this episode. And it seems that Joel has found a coroner where they can ship the body, but the town has grown extremely fond of this body. I guess we skipped over that part, uh, which is when uh, they need to keep the body from deteriorating, decomposing. Mm -hmm. And normally, as we learn, they would normally keep bodies in the freezer at the brick, but apparently this is a very prosperous hunting season, so there's no room in, in Hollings' freezer. So they have to just put this body out on a picnic table, sort of in the middle of town somewhere. And what I think is really funny is uh, Maurice has the line, um, it's fine, like he's not going to decompose. The, it's, what, like seven degrees outside. The only thing we have to worry about is getting sentries. And it's like people to guard the dead body <laughs> from wolves or someone else to like, you know, from something, some animal attacking or stealing some the wolf body. Stealing the body desecrating away. the corpse. Um, uh, so that's fun. That's fun. They get, uh, I think Ed takes the first shift and I almost thought he was joking though. When he said that <laughs> they put the bodies in Hollings freezer. Yeah, that is, that seems, uh, seems not like up to FDA, you know, like health, health, uh, not yeah, FDA, health, code but like health code violation. It's a health code violation. Yeah. I, I almost thought that was like a joke. Uh, but it almost, now that I look back at it, it seems like not a joke. Yeah. It seems like that is, he's telling the truth. I think. Mm-hmm. Isn't that part of the rituals of a deceased body of one of Jewish faith is that somebody has to guard the body? So it's called a Kaddish. And I don't think it's, it's not necessarily um, guarding the body, but I think, I don't, I could be getting this wrong. So take this as a grain of salt. This is the gist of it. To pass on in life, um, to have a proper funeral, you have to be mourned for. Um, there's a prayer called the Mourner's Kaddish, mm-hmm. um, which is very long, kind of litany. It's of like sort of plays out as like a list, and you sort of repeat these lines over and over again. And a- according to the faith, um, you need to have a certain number. Maybe it's twelve or seven, or there's like a certain number of, I want to say, men who have to perform this Mourner's Kaddish. So maybe that's where you're getting the idea of centuries. Yeah, you do need to have a group of people who basically stay up maybe all night reciting the mourner's Kaddish. That's mm. like your proper sort of funeral, I guess, you would have in the Jewish faith. Yeah. Um, forgive me for being a little foggy on that, but... No, no, I, I just vaguely remembered that. I thought I didn't know if that had any bearing on the, what was happening on this episode with mm-hmm. them guarding the body. I believe uh, right there is there. an episode There is an episode of Northern Exposure... Um, that deals with Kaddish. Really? Um, yeah. That's n- not for a while. I believe it's in third, fourth, or fifth season. Oh, that's so interesting. So we'll come back to that. We'll definitely, um, we'll read up. Yeah. I like the, uh, what seems to be like a midnight vigil for that dead body. Yeah. All of the townsfolk kind of walk in a line. I, I think it's, um, I think the purpose of it is to try to identify the body, but really it feels like a funeral. Like everyone regards him and uh, sort of has this, uh, you know, look into the void, you know, um, everyone has these very deep feelings, um, which is something that's brought up in Chris's eulogy that we played at the beginning of this episode. Chris has a great line somewhere in this episode where he says, the dead body is like a still pond. We see our own reflection. Hmm. Um, so it's sort of like when his experience is our experience, his fate is our fate. So even though they don't know him, they can relate to his life, they can assume what his life might have been like, and they can understand that just like he's dead, we will all die. Yeah, know? it's reflecting on your mortality whenever you're seeing somebody also pass away. I, I like that line as well, too. Uh, I just thought of this. Yeah. 
I understand why they did it the way they did in the show, but in this episode, they referenced, well, at least Joel referenced that the town population was 850 now. Oh, when did he say that? Um, honestly, I can't even remember. Okay. I just well, remember. He I'll does, take your word for it. Yeah, yeah, it is 850, which is not a lot of people. Yeah. We basically had the whole town come. No one was still able to ID this man. Well, he's, it's very likely that, you know, from Joel's, um, sort of detective work that this guy is not from Sicily because pick up shirt on Monday. There's no dry cleaner. There's no tailor. Um, the only thing it could possibly mean if he's a Sicilian, it could mean like maybe someone is doing his laundry for him. Mm. And he's going better. But I think it's possible that he's like a drifter from some other place. Oh, no one okay. Knows. I just found it strange that he managed to find Joel's office, like Joel's doctor office and still be yeah. in line and everything. Uh, that seems like something only the town natives would know. No, he's probably just visiting town for a while and, and didn't really have any, but that's funny. Yeah. It's like he would have had to come into the town, not made any friends, or if he made friends, they would have had to have left town before he died or, you know, no one identified him. At least the procession of people that came out that night could mm-hmm. identify him. Uh, backtracking a little bit. Yeah. Is pew leaning kid in the town hall? There's certainly no kid that's leaning on a pew. There is a kid with like a blue baseball cap, but I mean, we're, we're looking at the DVDs and it's been what, six months since they've shot the first season. So he, he may have grown or he may not live there anymore. He may not be acting anymore. Yeah. I, I don't think I noticed him either. And I'm I don't think I saw him at a town hall meeting either. I'm a little sad, uh, to not be able to identify him. Cause he's always leaning on that pew, even, I know. When, even when he's sick, you know, it's oh, probably there. just the extra and they, they had to keep shooting the scene over and over, over again. Uh-huh. He was probably thinking, I was like, I'm just going to start leaning. I'm getting tired. Yeah. Standing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, let's wrap up this, um, the body in question, you know, the, the, the dead body, we played you the uh, sort of eulogy that Chris gives. Right after that, Maggie reads a poem. As I guess part of a eulogy, it's perhaps Shakespeare's most famous sonnet, mm-hmm. uh, Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds Admit Impediments. And she says, she says she wants to read this poem, but it looks like she has it memorized because she's just like staring off and yeah. reciting this poem. <laughs> uh, what do you think about the choice of poem here? It, uh, the relevance, the meaning? Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to come out and say that I'm not the best at interpreting poetry. I've mm-hmm. never been the best at that. I mean, yeah, it's okay. Poetry. Yeah. I, I understand it's subjective and everything, but I actually did spend like a good amount of time trying to understand yeah. uh, this sonnet. I believe it's a uh, Shakespeare sonnet 116 that she's referencing. And I, I think the poem is, is t- uh, talking about the, uh, the tr- uh, true love and how it can still withstand despite labels. I think that's when I was able to get out of it. Um, mm-hmm. What about you? I think you're, you're much better at me than well, deciphering uh, poetry. Well, I would just say, like, I don't know. Would you be able to say that this poem relates necessarily to the dead body, or is this more of like a her reflection on Joel and her father, or like oh, Rick? Definitely a reflection on Joel and mm-hmm. her father. I, I would say that you're right more than the dead body. Also, it's sort of an easy grab. That's like the most famous Shakespeare poem. Yeah. Like for instance, if you were like, I would like to read a poem nine times out of 10, that's what's going to happen. Like someone's going to read that poem. That's just like the most pa- famous poem in the world. Mm. Yeah. That really reminds me of that wedding passage that they always use. I think it's from one Corinthians 13, four, uh, seven. Okay. And it's a uh, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. They always yeah, use that Yeah, that's one, true. Yeah. That one Corinthians passage. Wow, that's pretty cool. So that uh, predates Shakespeare, obviously. Um, but yeah, kind of reminiscent of at least uh, 
sort of the feeling of the structure of this sonnet. Yeah, I, I like how Shelley ends that whole yeah, section. She just believes that Maggie wrote that poem for some reason. Yeah, boy. And it holds a little too long on uh, Halling, who just, uh, you know, squeezes her closer. <laughs> it's like, poor Shelley, you know. Yeah. She, she doesn't really get it, but it's We could fine. probably insert that sound clip. It's, it's a yeah. really good sound clip to use. Boy, she sure can write. And I think it's really cool um, sort of how, you know, the body is finally um, given the funeral. They're going to light him up sort of as like a funeral pyre. Chris holds a torch and sort of matter-of-factly says, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, which is really sort of like the rock star moment. Like, you know, like it's like yeah. going to be like the fireworks <laughs> in the show, but he takes it with some uh, grace and delivers it uh, with some respect. And uh, yeah. They, they light him up. Uh, juicy fruit was in his pocket. What do you think about, do you have any um, affinity to juicy fruit? I did when I was a kid. I would always ask my uh, mother who would take me on to like grocery shopping. I would always Get ask some juicy for fruit. either juicy fruit or the Hershey's cookies and cream. Oh uh, yeah. There's like, uh, it's like the white chocolate with yeah. the Oreo stuff in it. I still really like it I, as I a used full to, grown adult. Yeah. I used to be a big fan of that. Not a huge fan today, but I respect that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I, but juicy fruit was my uh, runner up. I was gotcha. a really big fan of it, especially the, I, I believe the John Doe, the person who passed away, he also had the yellow flavor, right? The yellow packaging? I think that's the only flavor of Juicy Fruit. I was going to, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, what would you describe the flavor of Juicy Fruit? I, I didn't know that was the only flavor. Yeah, Juicy Fruit, I don't think it has another flavor. I'm learning so much today. <laughs> well, well, what do you, what would you describe? This is my favorite kind of sort of trivia of Juicy Fruit. What is the flavor of Juicy Fruit? Oh, gosh. Um, from, I can, you know, I haven't had it since I was a child, but I want to say it was lemon. So, um, there's a lot of controversy or a lot of, um, debate or sort of mystery rather. Wow. Maybe that's sort of like a key, maybe I'm overanalyzing it, but there's a lot of mystery with the flavor of juicy fruit. Actually, apparently like the flavor is sort of kept very vague in advertising reading from Wikipedia here now. Um, but apparently it, uh, spokespersons have come out saying that the flavor is, um, a combination of banana and pineapple. Hmm. But juicy fruit, um, you know, characteristically doesn't taste like a single fruit. You know, it's a, sort of a chemical combination, though some people say it resembles the flavor of jackfruit. Would you agree? with? I, I always think it reminds me of jackfruit in a way. I'd have to eat it again in order to be reminded of the flavor. Honestly, it's been over, I mean, at this point, two decades, I think. Since you had it. Yeah, since I've had uh, juicy fruit. But had, that's mean, really I'm, interesting. I love it. I've had it recently. Um, also, apparently, uh, apparently the, the, one of the chemicals used in the flavoring is uh, referred to sometimes as banana oil. That, you know, chemical is also found in jackfruit. So it could be an explanation why some people taste that when they oh. chew juicy fruit. No, I think that's actually a great point to overanalyze uh, yeah. how you can interpret many ways from just one thing. It's a paradolic flavor, yeah. this juicy fruit. I really like this. <laughs> um, so... We kind of narrowed it down to our last sort of plot line that we've been avoiding from the beginning, which is uh, Hauling circumcision. Yeah, so Hauling wants to go have a circumcision at the age of 63 because he believes that that will... It's a cosmetic surgery. Like yeah, he, yeah, he thinks elective, it's more in, in style as Joel says. Yeah, an elective cosmetic surgery to make him hip with the kids. <laughs> um, I just... I like um, when he walks into Joel's office in the beginning. Morning, Joel. Hi, Holland. 
can I do for you? Well, uh, let me see. Uh, my neck was a little stiff last week. Uh-huh. And uh, once in a while, I get a tick right here under my eye. Yeah? I'm thinking about getting circumcised. And every now and again, my knee pops out. What? My knee pops. No, no. Before that? He just kind of like, you know, hides that. <laughs> he buries the lead, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, I just think that's great. You know, funny writing, funny delivery. Um, but obviously, Joel is against this. Mm-hmm. You know? It's an unnecessary surgical procedure. I like how he responds whenever Holling says, well, uh, I mean, you're circumcised too. And Joel says, well, I'm Jewish. It's in the contract. Yeah, so he didn't really have a choice. And it's, you know, requires stitches, as Joel says. It just does 33, I think he says. No, that's how many stitches uh, that Je- oh, Jesse got from Bear Jesse inflicted on him. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just not like a pretty, um, the... Penis has a lot of blood vessels. It's very sensitive tissue. Like it's not a good surgery. It be incredibly painful. Yeah. So for back and forth throughout the episode, Holling decides not to do it, but then decides again to do it because he thinks it'll impress Shelly or she'll like it more. We're gonna roll through this. Uh, <laughs> talk about this. I think it's crazy. It is crazy that uh, Chris in the Morning broadcasts all of the information about hauling circumcision on air. Yeah, that's got to be against doctor-patient confidentiality. And he, like, explains, like, the Jewish tradition of, uh, I think it goes into great detail about, like, you know, after circumcising, being circumcised, you save the foreskin and bury it under a fruit tree. This is something that no one needs to hear on the airwaves, especially, like, this is... It's in the you know, morning, too. Yeah, Holling's a private life, you know. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I totally agree with you. But I also think that it was hilarious how all the townsfolks knew about this procedure that was about yeah. to happen to Holling. Uh, again, this has been happening all throughout season two. Yeah. It seems like it's been happening every episode. But the townsfolk seems to be in on some sort of intimate detail of uh, the main character's lives, whether it is with Chris and Maggie and having to uh, have his journey recover his voice back. Yeah. Uh, or it's, you know, Holling's genitalia. Yeah. <laughs> um, they seem to be in the where uh, in, in the know. It's a small know town. Yeah. yeah. So it, news travels fast and everyone seems to know about every intimate detail of anyone in anyone's life. But Holling has this crazy nightmare fantasy which is sort of photographed with a wide angle sort of fisheye lens. So uh, really the wide angles, this extreme wide angle um, is used. It makes to make things seem very surreal, ugly and frightening almost, you know, cause it's mm-hmm. like this weird sort of like fisheye yeah. fishbowl sort of effect where Hollings face is distorted in this very creepy, frightening way. Yeah. Holling is, you know, a patient uh, laying down and Joel is going to perform the circumcision with like a hunting knife, like a giant, like Bowie knife. It's this nightmare that um, Holling has. And I think post this uh, dream, Holling just drinks a lot of hard liquor. Like he's constantly drunk after this. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I like Joel's term for it. He asks Holling if he's stewed or he's like, you, you look at your stewed. When he comes barging into his uh, house at like what? 2 AM. Yeah. What happens in that scene? Yeah. He comes in and apparently he is pissed drunk from what I can tell. Um, And he's telling him, he's like, you know what? You're fine. Dr. Joel. I trust you. 
I think that you're going to make the best decision. Obviously, he's talking about himself. Yeah, he's like projecting onto Joel. Yeah. He's like, I don't want you to be worried, Joel. Mm-hmm. Don't have anything to worry about. You're a great doctor. And you can tell that Joel understands that Holling is very nervous about this. He's incredibly drunk, uh, trying to avoid this thought, I guess, uh, because it's the very next morning that he has to um, has to go see the doctor. And somehow he's not hungover. Wait, <laughs> hang on. Um, I don't know if this is right or not, but I know you can't eat or drink before any surgery. Yeah. Uh, at least like, I mean, 12 hours before. Is that... I don't know if that applies for this um, this surgery, but maybe so. I mean, he's doesn't alcohol sort of thin your blood? We're not yeah. doctors, so <laughs> I think we're speculating on this. But yeah, so it would probably cause uh, too much bleeding, you know, too, if you were mm-hmm. hungover and drunk. But perhaps none of this matters because the next morning, um, Joel, I love his sort of tactics in this scene. So Joel... Um, approaches, uh, as soon as um, Holling enters, Joel approaches sort of the surgery here uh, by making the doctor's office like the least inviting environment. And Joel is rushing very quickly. And he's like, uh, anesthetic? No, we, we don't need anesthetic. Holling's good for it. You know, he he fought Jesse the bear. He's got know? a high threshold of pain. Yeah, so he's, he's trying to obviously rush into it and make Holling uncomfortable and scare him, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's the tactics he's using to, to have Holling back out of it. Um, but what actually, you know, halts the operation is... Uh, Joel notices a hickey on Holling's neck, which after some questioning, he finds out, uh, what is it? It's like the hickey came from like two nights ago or something. And Joel uh, brings up a speculation of, um, you know, like obviously if that hasn't healed in that amount of time, it means it's possible that your blood isn't clotting as fast as it should. Yeah, like, blood diathesis, dia- it's yeah. blood diathesis, I can't say. Ble- uh, bleeding diathesis? Diathesis, it yeah, it's uh, blood diathesis mm-hmm. uh, is what Joel says that he could possibly have. And he's like, I, I don't think we should do this operation. I don't feel comfortable anymore as a doctor. I don't think we should do this. But, so let's just think about it this way. Mm-hmm. Joel has this whole plan to use these tactics uh, to scare Holling so that he won't get the operation. Um, but let's say that doesn't work. Like, what would Joel do next? You know, if it wasn't for the hickey that Joel saw, would would the um, operation still go through? So I was thinking, like, maybe Joel had this plan all along. Like the night before, when Holling visits him and he's like super drunk, is it possible that Joel could have seen the hickey then? Because it's almost as if like Joel has this whole scene planned out, but then this sort of curveball of the hickey comes in. And I went back and watched the scene. It's very darkly lit. And again, we're, we're only using standard definition DVD quality. Um, so it's kind of hard to tell if there is the hickey in that scene, like visible. Mm-hmm. But it's plausible. Like, you know, it's kind of dark, but. Yeah, I, hmm, that's a really good uh, theory right there. I didn't even think about that at all. Honestly, yeah. I thought that... Because if, if not for the hickey, if Joel had not known about the hickey, uh-huh. would this plan have actually worked? Or what yeah. was his plan? Uh, you know? I didn't even know he was trying to dissuade him, to be honest. Well, like, mm-hmm. up until he saw the, blo- uh, the blood... Yeah, um, diathesis. Diathesis right there. I thought that Joel was just trying to get it... You know, just trying to hurry it up. Mm-hmm. But he still was looking for a way out. Yeah. Uh, 
if it presented itself and it gotcha. just happened to present itself right there. Otherwise, you still would have done it. It was the way that I interpreted the mm-hmm. scene. But that's really interesting that you thought of that. And maybe Joel did mastermind this. Yeah. He seems crafty enough to have thought of that. And maybe he would have thought of like another thing that would have impeded the surgery. Yeah. He probably had a, I mean, if he was uh, as crafty as we're giving him credit for, he probably would have had a couple different avenues to find his way out. Well, thank God we're done with that plot line. We don't have to talk about a 63 year old man's penis circumcision anymore uh yeah (laughs) is there anything we missed here charles that you'd like to talk about before we throw to our Hmm. guest uh apparently um sicily does not have a coroner though it does have an undertaker milt wyman who is the taxidermist is also the undertaker do you have to elect the undertaker no no no. i don't think an undertaker is a is a um like a political elected position. Undertaker is just uh, someone who works in a morgue, I guess. And, you know, Fermalda hides the body or presents the body for, um, for, for burial, for funeral rather. Oh, okay. Well, I know that some coroners are elected though. Coroner. Yeah. But not, but not undertaker. We're talking about undertaker. Yeah. Undertaker. Yeah. Yeah. That that one's not, uh, I, I, I got them confused. Oh yeah. The only other thing that in my notes that we haven't talked about is uh, this very loud helicopter that keeps circling <laughs> our recording l- studio. They're looking for somebody. Yeah. Well, yeah. they gotta be, I guess. Yeah, the, some jack probably robbed the store. Saturday night. Friday night. Saturday night. Oh, it's Saturday morning, I yeah. guess. Yeah. The only, the only other thing that we haven't really talked about um, that I have in my notes is uh, Maurice gets a monologue in this episode. It's not his greatest, but... He has a moment um, talking to, he's alone with the dead body. He sort of monologues with it. Um, and he sort of muses on death and um, sort of presents the idea that every day you should ask yourself, are you prepared to face death? You know, I think the way he puts it is like, are you prepared for takeoff every morning? You know? Yeah. It kind of reminded me of that famous scene in Hamlet, Alas, Port York, mm-hmm. when he's uh Hamlet has York's skull in yeah. his hand and he's uh, talking about oh. the finality of death. Yeah, so Maurice is sort of that. like grabbing the, you know, the skull yeah. in, in the graveyard. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, kind of reminded me of that scene right there. Draw I'm not, that I, relation. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was kind of a fine scene. You know, am I prepared? And he uses the analogy of the pre-flight liftoff. Yeah. you know, he's an astronaut and everything. No, yeah, it's definitely um, some decent Maurice uh, action here. Um, pretty pretty impressed with uh, Maurice's uh, characterization in this season as we've said um, I don't know man when we get to the uh, the retrospective at the end of the season we got to see how high Maurice ranks in our list of favorite uh, characters yeah. no, I, don't, I don't think he's going to take it but uh. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I think uh, now is the time we're going to throw to our guest never seen this show before our guest this episode is Bruno He's a cinematographer, director of photography. He's a cameraman. So, you know, he's familiar with film, with TV, with movies. Uh, so he should probably have some good, some good things to say about this episode. Or maybe he disliked it. We'll see uh, what he has to say. All right. So this is Bruno. And I just watched All is Vanity, the episode three of season two. Northern Exposure. You know, this show is pretty, pretty out there. Pretty, like, kind of more absurd than I think I'm used to seeing in modern TV. <laughs> um, just seems like 
all the characters kind of have their own thing going on. They all like play this like very specific part in this weird like play that they're all in. <laughs> and it's like, I don't really know who the main character ever really is, even though there's just, you know, constant back and forth. It's like kind of like a community of this, but this like weird public community of people who um, are like a little too open, you know, like every, everyone's like personal business is like very public to the, to the, the whole, um, the whole town, you know, I think in this episode they had this like dead guy show up at Dr. Joel's office and like kind of was announced throughout the whole town and, and anytime there was like a time where they could see him, people would like show up and visit him. It's like this weird kind of like death theme going on. Yeah, strange. Remind me of like the Twilight Zone or something. something. Like something that would happen. Like some stranger shows up to town. No one knows who he is. Ends up being dead, but then like, but still the town doesn't want to get rid of him because now it's like, it's, it's theirs. It's part of this like weird, yeah, community. Very strange. But it was cool. They, they, at one point in the show, they said, I forget which character. It's hard to keep up with the character. I feel like the character of Holly, the old guy who, who like, is supposed to get circumcised, which is another weird, like, side plot in this weird, absurd world. It's like the guy went, older guy wants to get a circumcision because his young, hot girlfriend wants him to. I guess that's, like, all tied into vanity. I don't know. It was um, all very strange and kind of cool. Someone at one point said something about, I, am I prepared for liftoff? And like, you should live your life where every moment you're kind of ready to, ready to die. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, Cause like at the very end of the, of the episode, they, spoiler alert, but they like burn this, this guy that no one knew. They like kind of sacrifice him front of the whole town or not sacrifice but they just like give him a peaceful burning <laughs> kind of like a, a tri tribute or something I don't know yeah it was just like a very strange absurd world reminding me of like kind of a Cajun Alaskan vibe where it's like their own weird traditions and Indians and things that from their past keep coming back into play and but everyone's very tight-knit and very like open to a, a sense of like it's like doesn't like that doesn't really exist but it does in their world definitely makes me want to keep watching actually i've seen two episodes now i watched the last episode with with lizzie and i was pretty excited about watching this one anyways yeah i'll let you know how uh, the rest of the season goes. Unless this is it, right? How many episodes are there? I need to get with the Northern Exposure program. But yeah, that's it. That's about, that's about all I have to say about Northern Exposure. So that was Bruno's guest uh, analysis, guest commentary. I think uh, maybe a major takeaway here is that this show is pretty weird, would you say? Yeah, everyone is mentioning that. show is incredibly out there. It's uh, strange, weird... Absurd. Um, 
at one point Bruno compared it to the Twilight Zone, which I think is pretty apt. Like the the idea, I think in this case, was of sort of this dead body coming to town, embodying death for everyone here sort of sees that uh, that as a symbol of death and there's a lot of reflection there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also liked how Bruno picked up on, well, not picked up on, but has made the commentary that all of the townsfolks and all the characters within there have their own distinct characteristics and personality. Yeah. yeah Everyone think, is always um, picking up on that. I think we had said, uh, Lizzie might've mentioned this as well, sort of like lots of good character design. It's, it's sort of like they're all different cogs in the same machine, but they're very different in their own ways, though they all, you know, kind of work together to form Sicily, Alaska. Yeah. I think he, uh, uh referenced it as a play yeah sort of like all these characters that are there to to perform this play and in the end that's what it is right we're watching a little teleplay that's true there was an interesting point that bruno brought up i couldn't tell if it's a compliment or detriment to the show he he had the feeling asking himself who is the main character here um which you know you could be seen as maybe one of the strengths of the show is that it's so character driven all of the all of the supporting cast sort of get their own deep story, but that can always, that can also be a problem. You know, whenever I think we mentioned Charles, you and I, how some of the better episodes really focus on Joel being sort of the central protagonist. Yeah, I would agree with you on there. And we did make that comment before that every time there's a lot of character growth on Joel, I find that those episodes are the strongest ones, which yeah, I, I guess you're right. It is a little bit of a derogatory comment toward the show that we, <laughs> we, we, well, people that are watching this for the first time can't really tell who the main character is. Yeah, especially, I guess, in an episode like this. I don't think Joel um, necessarily has a lot of huge progress or change, would you say? Yeah, definitely not. You know, now that I think about it, if I'm looking at it from Bruno's eyes, Joel can just be one of the characters in the towns. In, right. in towns. Like he is the doctor that runs a town and someone just died in his office. And that was it. The main character of this episode, who would that be? I think a strong contender could be Holly. Uh, Holling? No. Potentially for the, <laughs> for the, uh, for the circumcision. I guess I think Bruno calls him Holly. Yeah, is that what Holly. you said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is, I guess there is some Joel and Maggie in there with, um, with Maggie's father. That's true. And then who else? Maurice, not really central no, necessarily. Definitely yeah, it's not an interesting Ed. episode. A lot, a lot of different things going on, I guess. Yeah. I also didn't pick up on the vanity part of the circumcision. Right. Yeah. We didn't really comment on that, but that totally kind of fits in theme with the title, All is Vanity, because it's a cosmetic surgery as... Um, as Joel says. Yeah, he totally cosmetic. doesn't have to go through with it, and he only wants to do it because he wants to impress his almost wife. I, let's see. I like that um, Bruno also felt pretty strongly about the sort of the, we, we called it the Maurice poor Yorick scene, you know, sort of a, a very deep dive into death and mortality and what is it, sort of like always be prepared mm-hmm. at the beginning of every day as if it's your last. This is just... Um, this is, has nothing to do with the context of what uh, Bruno was saying, but I, I found it was really interesting. Uh, he mentions that he, he watched the episode with Lizzie, 
Um, both of their commentaries kind of sounds like they're whispering very quietly. <laughs> <laughs> I know they recorded it late at night, but... Um, Are they feeding each other lines to say? Oh, <laughs> they're sort of like, no. Well, I imagine they're recording it late at night. Maybe they don't want to wake someone up. However, the original file that they sent me of their recordings, it's uh, they actually sent both of the recordings in the same file, but they used... Um, as a as a way to mark when each of the parts, you know, Lizzie's part and Bruno's part, the way that they marked the beginning of those was with very a very loud sequence of claps. So there's, I know that they're not trying to be quiet, but <laughs> after they <laughs> just sort of like that slate clap really loud. That's hilarious. Um, it's a good way for me to find where they start in the, in the file, but also still mind boggling. They're, they're very quiet. <laughs> well, I guess Bruno had an advantage in this episode then because he at least knew the characters to some degree. Right, he's, he's kind of seen both. Um, actually, this is something that Bruno told me in person. He was very sort of confused by Holling in this episode because he thought that the character just like completely changed from the last episode. If you recall, in uh, The Big Kiss, Holling is I think only maybe in one scene really. He's, he doesn't have a lot to do, so... Maybe that could add to why Bruno sort of was, he thought it was a whole new character. Wow. I don't know. Do you recall much of, um, obviously we, we know what Hauling looks like. Like we aren't confused, I guess. Yeah. Like, you know, his mannerisms and all that, but, Mm -hmm. uh, he does act very differently. We, we mentioned in this episode, he gets to play sort of a new, a new type, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's actually really interesting. So what we perceive to be very out of the box is in the box for yeah. the guest washer. They don't have <laughs> no idea. <laughs> oh, wow. Also, the uh, the method of burial or the funeral that goes down, Bruno comments it sort of being like a sacrifice. <laughs> but then <laughs> I love how he <laughs> corrects himself. It's more of a peaceful burn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're burning him to, uh, you know, have a prosperous crop growth this year. <laughs> Why, um... Did they mention in this episode why they burn instead of burial? Do they do, they can't do burials in Alaska? Yeah, I thought that there might be a line about the wolves or something like that. The no, wolves no, are, no, no, that was yeah, for when the ones were, that would scavenge, I guess, for the dead body. Yeah, but Maybe, that was only before they were put into the ground. Like that was right. when they were, they were just leaving out and about and the wolves would come. Yeah. Um, Does it have anything to do with like snow being on the ground? It's like hard to dig through, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Do you think it's because they don't actually know who the person is, so therefore they felt it was appropriate to not give them a plot of land, but rather just to cremate the body? Maybe that has something to do with it. I think they would still, even though they don't know the person, you know, they, they don't really know what to put on the tombstone, I guess. But I think they would still give them the same respect because they seem to love him as, just as they love themselves, you know? So even if they didn't know his name to put on a tombstone, uh, if burial was common, I imagine they would probably treat him the same. But I'm, I guess I'm just assuming that in Sicily, that, that, that's common. The, uh, a fire funeral, I guess. The sacrifice, the yeah, peaceful burning. like a Viking funeral, basically. Yeah, that's the term, right? Vi- Viking funeral. Mm-hmm. Have you ever actually thought of Sicily as Cajun, Alaska? Yeah, that's a good point. Bruno makes that comparison. Cajun being like, Cajun Louisiana culture. I have thought, um, I remember, I think maybe it was Jay who actually pointed it out to me whenever we were watching it in high school, but 
the people of Sicily are very much sort of like rednecks. And, uh, you know, Southerners in Louisiana are sort of stereotyped as being country and redneck. Um, so I have, I have thought about that sort of like the further, what is, what did we say? It's like, sort of like it completes the circle, like the further North you get and the further South you get, the more sort of, Oh, uh, like a horseshoe theory. Yeah. For lack of a better term, more hick or more redneck, I guess. That's actually, yeah, that's really hilarious. But, um, no, yeah. Bruno, uh, has has worked around Cajun music, has uh, made films uh, featuring Cajun music. So obviously it's on his mind, but I love how, I love that comparison. Um, I'm trying to remember what he said. It's sort of, sort of like maybe he compared it to, to community, to, to having a past, you know, sharing a history with obviously Cajun Louisiana culture is very um, ancestral in a way. And Sicily, Alaska sort of feels that way in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I would agree with you there. Like a lot of Creole Cajun culture is built on the foundation of family. Like that's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's very similar to Sicily, Alaska. From what we can tell, all the townsfolks have been there for generations and there aren't Everyone seems to get along very well. I know we say that so many times, but it really is a, it's an important factor, an important characteristic here. Well, yeah, that's Bruno's commentary. Thanks again, Bruno, for uh, watching the episode. And oh wait, yeah, he he's. <laughs> what did he say? He was like, I, "Am I done with uh, season two? Is that the end?" Oh. <laughs> After three episodes, <laughs> so there will be seven episodes in season two. So stick around. Yeah, audience. he actually wasn't even that far off. If you <laughs> stop to think about it, like he was fifty percent, almost fifty percent of the way done. It's a short. It is a short season. Yeah, he's. You're right. <laughs> um, shorter than the first season. Yeah, no. Stick around, Bruno. How many episodes are in season three? 23? It's, yeah, it's up there. 22, 23. Yeah, so like triple uh, the amount me. of season one and season two. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there one day. Uh, one step at a time. Next episode is, what is that? Number four, season two. What I did for love. Is that a reference to a chorus line? Uh, maybe so. I guess we'll see. Hmm. Okay. Well, it was great potting with you. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Charles. I'll see you in one week. All right. See you in one week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Bruno for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.